You ever have one of those weeks where it's just like so much chaos? And you come to church and you're like, okay, I got to calm down for a minute. That's kind of how I feel. So let's just pray before we get started and like set aside all the disappointments and all the frustrations, everything we couldn't control this week, and just stop for a minute. Jesus, thank you that you're in control. And God, thank you that in the midst of all the chaos and all the chaos of our own doing and the chaos of those around us and just the brokenness of the world, you're working good in us and through us and for us. And so God, as we come to your word today, I pray that you'll meet us, you'll encourage us, you'll remind us that you are good, that you love us, that you would go to the cross for us. And we're so grateful that we can know you and love you and serve you and become like you. Lord, I pray you'll speak through me today, that you will take away things I want to say that aren't um, what you want. And Lord, may it just be pleasing to you. And Lord, may we be reminded of your love. Amen. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Uh, that's the thinking that defined many of the churches I grew up in. I heard that saying over and over again. Maybe you've seen it on a bumper sticker. In Tennessee, I would occasionally see it on a bumper sticker or on a billboard. And that seems simple, right? Like, oh, okay, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But there's some real problems with that argument. Perhaps the most egregious problem is that sometimes the Bible seems to contradict itself. Take, for instance, the Old Testament focuses on the law, and then the New Testament spends uh, many books rejecting the law, saying, oh, we're done with that, that's been finished, we're on to something new. Paul's emphasis on grace contrasts with James's emphasis on works. Uh, there's no mention of hell in the Old Testament, but there's numerous mentions of hell in the New Testament. Jesus emphasizes the kingdom, while Paul emphasizes heaven. The early emphasis was on the Jews, even among the New Testament believers, but then the New Testament moves towards focusing on Gentiles. So what do you do when you say, God settled it, I believe it, or God said it, I believe it, that settles it, but then the Bible seems to say different things in different places? The problem with this thinking is that if I turn to a verse— and just say, God said it, and that settles it, is that we ignore the context of the verse, and we ignore the trajectory of the Bible. The Bible is written over 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three languages, and we bind all these books together because we believe that Yahweh, the God who created the skies and the land, has partnered with humans to reveal himself and his intentions through this writing. And we call these texts inspired meaning there is a divine spark in these words, that humans just didn't write any old thought down, and they're like, I bet that's from God. They somehow, in a way we can't fully understand, God was involved in the process, and the idea of inspiration raises all kinds of questions that Christians have fought about for years, what exactly does it mean and not mean, and scripture doesn't give us a clear picture of what this looked like or how it came about. I would love that there, if there was a part of the Bible where they're like, here's what it looks like. You know, Jesus spoke to me clearly on a Wednesday, and I wrote down exactly what he said, but we, we don't have that kind of explanation of how it came about. We know not everything that a biblical writer wrote was considered God-breathed. You know, if Peter's wife sent him down to the market to get some fish and some bread, and, uh, you, you know, that didn't become the Bible. You know, Peter's shopping list for the market didn't become the Bible just because he was an apostle. But ancient Jewish and Middle Eastern people felt like certain things that they were writing down were the words of God, that God was speaking through them to their generation and the generations to come. And then the New Testament authors come along 
Both Jews and Greeks felt like they were continuing this long tradition and bringing the story begun in Genesis to fruition in Jesus. And all this is important. Like, why are we even talking about this? Aren't we in a series about what the Bible says about women? All this is important because today we're going to be reading some of the most controversial passages from Paul, and we're going to talk about what we're supposed to do with them. We're going to talk about what God is trying to say to us through them. And just to be clear, just because something is in Scripture doesn't mean it is what God wants. What do I mean by that? Well, there's murder in Scripture, right? There's abuse and all kinds of tragedies that God many times actively opposes or prevents. Description in the Bible is not prescription. Just because the Bible says, mentions something that happened doesn't mean that's what God wants. Just because the Bible accurately records a male-dominated time in history doesn't imply that we should be compelled to repeat it. Just like God wouldn't want us to repeat murders or abuses that are found in the Bible. Uh, take, for example, another, or take another example, slavery. There are numerous mentions that mention slavery in the Old and New Testament. Slave owners in the United States use these verses to support owning and often abusing their slaves because they're like, look, the Bible has slavery in it, so it must be okay, right? God must be for it. Take, for instance, this verse from Paul in Ephesians 6, verses 5 through 8. <clears throat> Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Jesus. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Jesus, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. And people read that and they said, well, obviously God must be okay with slavery in Alabama in the 1800s, right? He had Paul write this letter 2,000 years before, so he must be for slavery. Well, no, he wrote to a very different culture with a very different kind of slavery. Uh, no one thinks that what Paul wrote here is an excuse or somehow that God wants slavery. Here's another example. Five times in the New Testament, it says when you come together as Christians, you should greet each other with a holy kiss. No one bats an eye that we ignore this command given five times in the New Testament. We recognize it's a different culture. If you tried to kiss me, I would be really weirded out, and I'm a germaphobe, so thank you for not obeying this passage, right? We recognize it's a cultural idiom. It's something unique to that culture, not to us. No one thinks we are disobeying the word of God by not kissing each other this morning. But somehow, we get held up on some of these verses. But just because, uh, or some people won't use the same logic that we just used to dismiss these passages about slavery and about kissing each other when you come to church to dismiss the passages about women. And I have some complementarian friends. Remember, complementarians say the Bible or that God wants to set up leadership around gender, that men are leaders and women are followers. Complementarians say men and women are both made in the image of God, but that men are made to be leaders, to be the head, to be the guiding force. Um, many of my complementarian friends who just like me love the Bible and believe it has a divine touch, they usually tell me, you know what my real concern is, is that if we move on the role of women, if we use the same logic to dismiss these passages of Paul as cultural, then soon we will move on everything the New Testament says, that we won't have a moral basis for anything, that every verse and every command will eventually di be dismantled by the same logic until the Bible is a worthless collection of paper on a shelf. And um, 
I get that argument. I really do. I think that it's not a crazy argument. There's a fierce movement in our culture today to define right and wrong for ourselves. Like, who cares what the Bible says? Like, I decide what's right and wrong. Way too many Christians are not defined by the teachings of Jesus, but by their own opinions formed by the culture or formed by their political party or formed by their favorite speaker or thinker. And then they go to the Bible and attempt to bend it to what they already think. Listen, if you immediately attempt to jettison anything in the Bible that you don't like or that feels a little culturally weird, then you think you're God and the Bible has to agree with you instead of admitting that he's God and we have to agree with him. When I come across something in the Bible that I don't like that rubs me the wrong way, I wrestle with that. Sometimes I'm misunderstanding what's going on in the text, but sometimes I have some sharp edges that need sanded down so that I can become more like Jesus. So that I can change the way I think so that I begin to think about things like he does. Our culture is constantly crying out for freedom, and today we've redefined freedom as the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want, regardless. But that isn't freedom. It's slavery to our desires. Jesus commands things not to control us, but to funnel us towards joy. He doesn't command things to keep us from what we really want or to make us feel awkward in a culture that thinks that there should be no rules or restrictions of any kind. Obedience to Jesus is true freedom. Obedience to Jesus gets us to the abundant life that every human being craves. And there will probably be some people who listen to this series online. I've already gotten some messages from people who don't attend our church but just find our messages online and have things to say about it. There will be people who listen to this series and insist, this is what I'm doing, that I'm rejecting verses in the Bible that I don't like and trying to find ways around them because I want to make myself the authority and not submit to the Bible. Um, that somehow I don't like what the Bible says about women, and so I'm trying to find a way around that. Here's why I don't think that's what I'm doing. Here's why I don't think that's what this series is doing. And here's my explanation of why I don't think that is. Because we have a problem with Paul. And here's the problem we have. Paul seems to contradict himself. If you read Paul, he repeatedly praises female leaders, female evangelists, female house church pastors, female disciples, female deacons, and then he goes and makes statements about women that are completely contrary to his own statements, praising them for doing the opposite of what he teaches. For instance, when Paul arrives in Corinth, Priscilla and Aquila invite him to stay with them until they all go to Ephesus together. Uh, a few months later, when Paul leaves Ephesus, he leaves Priscilla and Aquila in charge of the church. Now, what's unique about this is, in first century, you never put the, the wife's name first. The man's name always came first, but he puts Priscilla's name first, which would only happen in the first century if he considered her the leader of the group. A woman would only precede a man's name if she was the leader or a higher-ranking person than the man. And so Paul seems to be implying Priscilla and Aquila, they're a team, they're taking over the leadership of this church, and Priscilla is the main one in charge. At the worst-case scenario, this is suggesting that they were co-pastors of the church of Ephesus together. goes on, carried Paul's letter to the Romans 16 as a deacon of the church in Centria. She carried Paul's letter to the Romans from Greece. This was a perilous journey by sea and land. And she said, take the book of Romans, which is like, if you want to get into theology, it's Romans. Carry this letter 
to Rome, and then in the first century, whoever carried a letter from someone was expected to read it aloud when they got there, explain it, and answer any questions about it. And so who does Paul send to do this? A woman. He praises her, Phoebe. I'm sending you to her. And then he goes on and commends commends her work that she's done at the church in Centria and how they should trust what she's saying when she brings this letter to them. In Colossians 4.15, Paul praises Nymphus, who hosts a church in her house in the city of Laodicea. In most cases in the first century, someone who hosted the church in their house was the leader of the house church. Paul doesn't mention any other leader in the praise of this church, just Nymphus. She probably led the church in her house. Acts 16 recounts the story of the first church in Europe. At Philippi, Paul encounters a group of women praying. One of them was Lydia, who opens her home to Paul and the new converts. And then he praises two other women in the Philippian church, Eudia and Syntyche, who Paul said were laborers with me in the gospel. In Romans 16, again, Paul mentions Junia, great among the apostles, who was a fellow prisoner and a co-laborer in the gospel. We talked more about Junia last week. So Paul's doing all this praising of women pastors and church leaders and evangelists and deacons and disciples. And then we have these verses to contrast. 2 Timothy 2, starting verse 11. Apostle Paul writing to Timothy, his student says this, A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman, woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with propri propriety. You're like, what? Ouch. That's the most sexist thing I've read in a long time, right? 1 Corinthians 14. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak. They must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home. It's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Titus 2, verse 3, Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers, not addicted to wine, but teaching what is good. They can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, and to stay busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Ouch, right? I've, you've probably seen some of those verses slapped around in a uh, really annoying way on social media from really some uh, fundamentalist religious person. Uh, but this leaves us with a problem. Which is it, Paul? Because you behaved one way, Paul, and then you said something very different. You acted one way, and then you write the church in Corinth and say something else. You act one way, and then you write Timothy and Titus and say something else. The contrast is so egregious that some scholars don't think Paul wrote the passages in Timothy and Titus at all, that they were added later by another author who just used Paul's name. That's one theory, but if we believe that Paul was writing inspired by God and that God preserved and protected his writings, we have to look for another answer. Some have argued that the epistles are letters to the churches, and we need to realize that we're reading someone else's mail. This wasn't written to us. Paul wasn't thinking, man, I bet there'll be some people who are meeting upstairs in an art center on the second floor on a really rainy Sunday, 2,000 years later on a continent that I don't even know existed, and I bet they'll have questions about women's role and what God thinks about women in a completely different culture in a completely different time. 
No, Paul didn't even think of us. He probably expected Jesus to return within a few years, if not a few hundred years. It wasn't written to us, but it is written for us. We have to do some hard work, though, and interpretation to figure out how do we apply this across time and culture. I think it's a helpful argument to remember we're reading someone else's mail. We don't know what report Paul heard that made him write this letter. We don't know what issue Timothy or Titus raised that prompted the letter. We don't get to see their side. We only get to see Paul's response. Timothy and Titus were both Greek converts trained by Paul, younger men who ended up carrying on his work and his legacy. Historians tell us that Paul wrote 2 Timothy and Titus very close together, around 64 or 65 AD, um, if not during the same year or at the very same time. He wrote them very close together. They were the last things he wrote before he died. He was about to be executed by Rome. And the timing is why some people think Paul couldn't have written it because they're like, he was killed in 64. If this was written in 65, obviously it wasn't him. But I think the timing is also important to understand Paul's frame of mind when he wrote this. He's like, I'm about to die. I'm writing to these people that I've mentored. I want to give them some advice. Uh, just when you're at your end of your life, you think about things differently. Paul also clued us into his approach to different groups of people in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. This is what 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23 says. I think this is so important to understand, Paul. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became one like those not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those who have no law. To the weak, I acted weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. Perhaps this is why Paul's writings have raised so many questions about authorship throughout the years. He knew how to talk to people in a way they would listen to so he could end up talking to them about Jesus. Paul's like, hey, when I'm hanging with the Jews, I act like a Jew. When I'm hanging with these people who have no faith, no background, I act like them so that I can reach them. I talk in a way that they understand. He knew how to talk to people in a way that they would listen. Paul had the unique role of moving the gospel from a Jewish focus to a Gentile focus. He had to both debate with Jewish people who saw Jesus as only for them. He had also a debate with Jewish people who brought, who thought Gentiles had to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus. He also had to navigate Gentiles who thought they were better than the Jews and didn't understand the morality that the Jewish people had because of the Old Testament scriptures. We often read Paul in light of today's questions and issues or at best in light of questions and issues from the Reformation, but to understand Paul, anytime you're reading something written by Paul, uh, if we're going to understand him and apply his writings to the issues of today, we have to fundamentally understand that his writings are always addressing the divide between the Jews and the Gentiles in the early church. That was his passion. That's what he spent his life on. In some cases, that means Paul was making concessions to keep peace between two very different groups of people who had become united over Jesus but remained divided on everything else. In the first century Jewish culture, it was a male-dominated society. 
We have records that many Jewish men would pray every day a prayer from the Talmud, which is like the rabbinical teaching, a collection of rabbinical teachings. This is the prayer that a Jewish man would pray every day. Praise to God that he made me a Jew and not a pagan. Praise to God that he has not made me an idiot. Praise to God that he has not made me a woman. That's what Jewish men would pray every day. That's a very different culture than our culture today. Could you imagine trying to come to them and get them to believe that in Christ we are all one? No male, no female, no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free. We are all in Christ. That's the people that Paul is trying to convince that there's this new thing going on in Jesus. And they're praying every day, thank God I'm not a woman. And the Greeks were little better. They had a little bit more opportunities for women, but women were still incredibly looked down upon and very often, unlike the Jewish society, exploited sexually. If people came over to your house for dinner and you had co-workers over, your wife was up for grabs. Paul wanted to present a way forward for these two extremely different cultures to find a third way to navigate life that didn't reflect either of their base cultures, either the Jewish male dominance or the Greek sexually explicit lifestyle and culture. The way of Jesus is always the third way, and Paul was trying to talk to both groups and get them both to come to a third way. Now, what about the counterpoint? What about the person listening to this or watching this who says, what if you're wrong, Alex? What if you're dead wrong? What if we should restrict women? What if women should be subjugated to a lower status, doomed to play second fiddle to men? What if that's the way God designed it? What if we get this wrong? What's the worst that can happen? Well, I think the worst that can happen is more people are going to see someone who looks like them talking about Jesus. More people are going to see someone looking like them leading the ministries of Jesus, sharing the good news of Jesus and his coming kingdom where all wrongs will be set right. I just don't think it's that bad if we actually get this wrong. If I'm dead wrong and women really should be held secondary to men, I don't think it's the big deal. I don't think God's up there rolling over in heaven if somehow I get this wrong. But I don't think we're wrong. Paul never lists elevating women over men as a sin. You know, in numerous places in the New Testament, Paul gives this long list of sins. He says, this is what a destructive lifestyle looks like. And he lists all these actions that are self-destructive behaviors. He calls works of the flesh instead of fruits of the spirit. He says, this isn't building the kingdom of God. It's tearing down the kingdom of God. It's ruining your life. It's not giving you the abundant life you want. Letting women be pastors or leaders never makes that list. Here's one of the examples in 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 9 through 10. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. There's nowhere in there where he says, and those who let women preach will not inherit the kingdom of God. He doesn't say that at all. It never makes the list. If you go to any of his lists, it's not in any of them. This means this isn't a sin issue. It's a wisdom issue. And Paul thought in his culture, in his wisdom, women shouldn't hold the highest positions of leadership. He didn't go out of his way to correct those who did. In fact, he seemed to praise a few of them, right? He was like, look at this great leader over here. But he didn't take steps to put women in those roles himself. And I think another piece of the puzzle that is critical to note is the audience that these three passages we read were written to. Titus was written to Titus, this mentee of Paul's, as he ministered to the church in Corinth. 
Yes, the church that Paul wrote first and second Corinthians to one of the most messed up churches in the New Testament And we know Timothy also led the church in Corinth for a time that he was left to straighten out the same church for a while And may have still been involved in some ways when receiving second Timothy So why does that matter? That means all three of these passages all three of these passages Restricting women were going to the same church and leaders in the same town so why does that matter? Well, Corinth had a number of issues, including the fact that, and this is a quote from a historian, she had a reputation for commercial Corinth Zestai. You want to say that with me? Corinth Zestai. It was a way to really trash talk somebody. You're calling them, you live like a Corinthian. It became a part of the Greek language, and it meant to live like a drunken harlot. Yeah. So the next time you're driving down the road in Philadelphia, somebody cuts you off, just be like, Corinthestai, you know? It's a new thing you can yell at people. Um, and as long as they don't speak Greek, they'll have no idea what it means. <laughs> Alien, a Greek writer, tells us that if a Corinthian was shown in a stage play, if, you know, they had these plays in, in a Greek play, if there was a Corinthian in the play, he was always drunk. It was a, it just meant you knew that if there was a Corinthian in the play, he was gonna be drunk. The very name Corinth was synonymous with debauchery, and there was one source of evil in the city which was known all over the civilized world, above the isthmus where the city was built, on the hill above the Acropolis stood the great temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and to that temple, this is from William Barclay's history of the um, New Testament, to that temple were attached 1,000 priestesses who were sacred prostitutes, and in the evenings they descended from the Acropolis and plied their trade on the streets of Corinth. In addition to these cruder sins, there flourished far more obscure vices which had come in with the traders and the sailors from the end of the earth until Corinth became known throughout the world not only as a synonym for wealth and luxury, but a synonym for drunkenness, debauchery, and filth. That's the city that Paul's writing these three things to. So let's just think about that context for a minute. For the women of Corinth who had seen and been told their entire lives that their spirituality was tied to their sexuality, perhaps Paul saw these harsh restrictions as a step in helping the men and women of Corinth develop new patterns of behavior around Christian worship. The people who lived in Corinth, the, the thing that they had seen as an act of spirituality and worship their entire lives was temple prostitutes going up and down the streets. And perhaps Paul had such harsh words for the church in Corinth because he's like, I need to move them from there over here, and we need to take some dramatic steps so that we can eventually get to a happy middle. Whatever the reason, we know that Paul doesn't give these same strict restrictions to the women in Ephesus or Philippia, or Rome, or Colossae, or Galatia, or Thessalonica. If you read the other books in the New Testament, if this was such an important thing, why doesn't he tell those churches? I think that's important. It's only in 2 Corinthians, Titus, and 2 Timothy. Letters to the church in Corinth, and leaders of the church in Corinth, that Paul suggests such restrictive advice for women. And if you read through 1 and 2 Corinthians, you'll see that church was messed up. Like, they were doing all kinds of crazy stuff. And Paul's like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Anytime you read a Bible verse, you need to know its context and the book it comes from. It's so easy to pull out one verse and be like, look, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. But we, yeah, we need to understand where it comes from. We need to understand its context and the trajectory of the whole Bible's narrative. 
The Bible tells a unified story about Jesus and his mission to reunite heaven and earth, God and mankind. That means the Bible is not primarily a moral rule book. That's not to say the Bible has nothing to tell us about how to live, but that it primarily wants to tell us about how Jesus lived, how Jesus died, how Jesus lives again, how Jesus has ascended into heaven, and how Jesus is coming back to set all wrongs right. The New Testament authors are trying to figure this out on the fly. It's all new to them. They're wrestling with how Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension have changed everything about our world, everything about our cultures, and is presenting a new way forward. The trajectory of the Bible seems like it's toward women being empowered, not women being oppressed. Toward women being freed, not women enslaved. Toward women having a voice, not women being told to be silent. After all, the entire Bible is one cohesive story about Jesus. And Jesus protected women, Jesus empowered women, Jesus honored women publicly, Jesus released the voice of women, he confided in women, was funded by women, celebrated women by name, respected women, and spoke of women as examples to follow. Now it's our turn. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it and giving it to us. And thank you for encountering us through these words. I don't always understand what it means to ha hold your inspired word in my hands, but I know as I read this book, as I pray over it, as I study it and think about it, I sense that you are with me, and I sense your voice and your spirit and your love for me. And God, I pray that you will help us come to your word with humility, willing to be changed and shaped by it. But let us also come with intelligence and wisdom, with a cultural understanding of history and understanding what it means to take these words and live them out 2,000 years later in a very different culture. Because God, I think you're still offering a third way forward. That's not our culture of American culture or Western culture, but there's a third way forward and it's your way. Help us not be shaped by our culture, our favorite speakers, or the best Instagram influencers, but let us be shaped by Jesus to live and love like you. And I pray these things like I believe you would. Mm -hmm.